Welcome to another ATP podcast with me, Seb Lozier. And at the end of two dramatic weeks in Rome, Daniel Medvedev has finally fallen in love with Clay. Well, the chair umpire jumps in. I'm not sure whether he'll check the mark. I don't think he'll need to. And Medvedev is the master in Rome. And it is a sixth Masters 1000 title for this man at six different venues. And significantly, of course, his very first title on clay. Two tight sets go his way, 7-5, seven, 7-5. Five, seven, five. Congratulations, Daniil, on your very first title on clay. You hadn't won a match here in Rome before this year. Did you honestly think you'd be able to stand here at the end with the trophy? No, I mean, I always want to believe in myself and I always try to do my best. I want to win the biggest tournaments in the world. In the same time, honestly, I didn't believe much I can win a master thousand on clay in my career because usually I hated it. I hated playing on it. I didn't feel good on it, like nothing was working so I can continue forever. Before this tournament, already in Madrid and Monte Carlo, I was kind of feeling not too bad. I was, I didn't have any big tantrums, you know. I was like, okay, you know, guys played better than me who, who beat me there, but okay, let's continue. And coming here, I felt amazing on practice. Like, I felt so good. I, I told my coach, he came a little bit later, and I was like, I don't know what's happening, but I'm feeling amazing. Let's see how it goes. But then you need to play the toughest uh, opponents in the world to try to make it, and I'm really happy that I managed to to do it and prove myself and everybody that I'm capable of doing it. And Holger certainly is a tough opponent. What did you do well particularly today? Tough match. I think we both started a little bit nervous and we're both missing, uh, let's say, our basics. Like we were missing some, some easy shots. We were kind of not holding the game, both of us. So I'm happy that at the end of the set I managed to step it up just before he did. And then second set, he stepped it up uh, straight away. And I was like, okay, that's a moment where I have to, to start, uh, you know, thinking, overthinking, and I have to start just playing better and try to uh, go to his level. And then it was a top match from, uh, from, this, uh, from this moment. And I think, uh, yeah, I was just uh, playing amazing in the end. Now you said you hated Clay before. Is this the beginning of a beautiful friendship? Friendship. I don't think I love it. I love hard courts, my only love, but uh, in tennis, huh? <laughs> but uh, I definitely like clay courts much more now. Massive congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So not to be this time for Holger Rune after losing to Daniel Medvedev. Congratulations to Daniel on a first ever ATP clay court title. But nevertheless, this was another major step forward for Runa. A second Masters final on clay this year, and he goes to a career-high six in the Pepperstone ATP rankings. So what are his nearest and dearest making of this rapid rise? In the first of a two-part special, Kate Florey from the ATP Uncovered team went to visit the Runa family at home in Denmark and met mum Annika, father Anders, sister Alma and coach Lars Christensen. Well, tennis has a new star. He's beaten Djokovic, the six-time champion. Just 19 years of age. I don't think about tennis 24-7, but I think about what's necessary for my tennis 24-7. I make the choices for my tennis. This guy's the real deal. One of the biggest games on the ATP Tour, full of confidence. What have you made of his attitude? We all feel the pressure, but 
I like it. I mean, I handle it well, sometimes I don't, but I try to do as best as I can. He's getting fired up. Incredible, incredible drama. Holger Runa is so confident. When you're young, you have so much fire, you want to do crazy things, but you just go out there and you grind. My goodness. First Masters 1000 title, top 10 in the world, and he's done it beating five top 10 players. Second title of your career so far. Obviously, I'm not the best in the world yet, but I believe that I can, and I'm getting closer to it every time, and this motivates me a lot. I'm the one who can beat this guy, I'm the one who can win this tournament, I'm the one who can be number one. You really have to believe it. What does it mean to you? It's uh, a young boy's dream is coming true, right in front of our eyes. From a young age, to, to be so disciplined is, is very hard, so it's a, a good story. First of all, I want to start off uh, thanking my team so much, my mom, Lars, my coach, and also my family back home. He's always been a big dreamer, and uh, he always seen things that, that other people might think as impossible. He's always said that's something he can reach. Uh, obsessive about his tennis, very ambitious, wants to be the best in the world, wants to beat the best in the world. If you try to see always the big picture rather than the small picture, you, you kind of understand more why I have to do this. Without tennis, I, I'm, I'm sure I wouldn't have the same mentality as, as I have today, so it's kind of built who I am. I fell in love with it from the beginning. He was, uh, he was a happy, happy boy. He was super active, always. He started to play tennis uh, when he was uh, six. You know, slowly it was very natural that my mom and, and my father, they sent me to tennis because they also sent my sister there. We practiced a lot together, like in Denmark, there is not a rich culture of elite tennis, so my mom would book a court and we would just practice until it was dark in the evening. We left them there and thought, okay, now we have one hour where they can play tennis and after five minutes the phone was ringing. Elmer's cheating on the lines. No, it's not. <laughs> when it was close, you know, she was cheating a little bit. I was maybe cheating a bit because we were so competitive. I can't say I'm completely innocent because I also really want to win, but he wasn't older than 12, I think, before he stopped beating me. Even though they went bananas if they lost, they could laugh at the same time because they felt the same. It's safe to play board games in the Rude Fountain? Oh, yeah. Elma, Elma actually said before that uh, <laughs> it would be really authentic if we start to argue now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the less competitive in the family. Right, so you're yeah. like the peacemaker. Yeah, yeah okay. exactly, because okay. uh, Anakin is also very competitive. I just so. pretend not yeah. to be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think normal parents and, and normal family would go like, go do your education and then, you know, you see how, how far you go there. But if that's not possible if you want to be the best in the world. You have to sacrifice a few things, friends, uh, parties, uh, being to birthdays and stuff, and uh, the whole family was willing to do that. Yeah, very sort of understated type character, but there's a little uh, switch that goes, it seems, within him. And, you know, these guys just want to win so badly. I was uh, I was teaching a group of children. And he was one of the kids. I was tr having most of these kids uh, coming like three times a week, and I would go every Monday. I would start with a new theme, a technical theme. My plan was, you know, to introduce the theme, then 
On Wednesday, we'll work a little bit more on it, and on Friday, hopefully, some of them are gonna get it. By Holger, when I introduced the theme on Monday, when he came back on Wednesday, he would do it to perfection. I started working with him when he was only seven years old, and uh, I've been with him ever since. It's wild because, you know, when you know each other for so long and you're not family, it's uh, not a lot of people can do that. Yeah, the big work started when he was like 12, 13 years old and he was pretty lazy at that time and he didn't really want to move so much. He was a bit chubby as a little kid and loved cake, still does. Now if he wanted to compete with the best and keep pursuing his dreams, he had to be a better mover. I would go every day, I would have drills set up for him and he hated it and he hated me when I was doing it but uh, I just kept going, you know, day after day after day after day. Keep repeating the right things, you know, keep repeating your right routines. So when you go into match days, having the right routines, having the right warm-up routines. And when you see now, I, I thank him for that because you have to be like this. Now we play best of five sets in some tournaments and if you go like this, it's, it's tough to maintain the, the good level. Olga Runa, he's a big guy, six foot two, and he's really powerful, strong legs. By the time he gets good at it, he starts liking it really much, you know, and uh, some of the drills that we used to do when he was a youngster, uh, he still wants those drills, you know, just to feel the exhaustion, to feel the, that, that he gets out of breath and that he can move fast and, and be on top of his game even when he's pressed, you know, so. Depends on the person, but I really enjoy that I have, you know, programs and stuff. And, uh, you know, on the tour, we have that all the time. There's practice, matches, everything. And I feel like on the tour, you learn so much. It's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, I even learned English. Hello, guys. This is Holger Rune. What are we doing here today? Photography, yeah. video, some stuff with our uncovered. Yeah, nice. I'm excited to do it. Because he looks all calm and collected, but he's got in trouble with the umpires a couple of times in the past. In these moments, it's very easy to stress, and that's a normal reaction when you when you're under pressure, you stress. I'm sure, that's something that as time goes on and as he matures, he'll he'll overcome and learn to control. But it's a challenge for every young player, I guess. I think he's really fearless, and that makes me really proud. Brick by brick, we're we're building up a wall around him, so uh, so he's going to be so much better on that in the future as well. He's a very open kid. He will never get stressed or depressed or anything because he put words on how he feels. So this is from uh, my wonderful fans that uh, I think it was after I lost the match where they said, keep your head high, Holger, the future is yours. You know, it cheers you up and it, it, you really appreciate how much uh, they support you and, you know, actually that they're willing, you know, to send you a message. It's really nice. Holger, well, I think you're going to run out of room if you keep winning. You know, when I look back and I look at them, you know, they, they mean a lot because they put so much work into it. And, and if I just, you know, throw them away, you kind of forget it a little bit more. So now I've, I have a memory of, of so many good tournaments and, and good moments. So that's why I keep them. What's the plan? It's uh, to get another room, hopefully. <laughs> and the plan is to keep winning and the room size is not going to stop me. And there's more to come from Holger and his family next week. He never really had a plan B, so it's this or nothing. And if you want to be the greatest player that you can be and you don't breathe the sport, I don't think it's possible. More to come on next week's pod, but if you can't wait that long, you can watch the whole thing right now if you want to on the ATP Tour YouTube channel. Stefanos Tsitsipas can be 
pretty happy with his clay court season so far. The Greek star lost to Medvedev in a rain-affected semi-final in Rome. Another deep run after quarterfinals in Monte Carlo and Madrid and a final in Barcelona. Heading into Roland Garros, the Greek philosopher has been reflecting on what it's taken to get to this point. There are lots of sacrifices that I didn't see as sacrifices at the time. Now I kind of maybe get an idea of why there would be sacrifices. I've been um, very professional uh, regarding in my everyday life and uh, somehow I wish I could be more relaxed in, in, that, in that sense and let go. But uh, at the same time, it's a, it's a blessing that I, I get to be so professional and get to experience pressure in my everyday life because I feel like that makes me better. There are times where you're kind of uh, fed up of the routine and you get tired of the constant traveling and the constant repetition that comes with the sport. Stefanos, bad luck today, but could you please uh, talk about your, your week? Um, I'm, uh, I feel like I'm replicating those speeches over and over again. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and you want to escape it and you want to go somewhere else and do something else and be with someone else. But it is important to have a strong mindset and remind yourself why you're doing this. It has served me really well when I switched to that mindset. It has made me feel like I'm healthier uh, mentally, physically, uh, spiritually, and it allows me to uh, have a great time when I'm traveling uh, around the world to play tennis um, simultaneously. And it's important for me to have these battles on the court uh, that uh, one day I'm going to be telling my grandkids that I was able to push through them or sometimes I failed and that's, that's, there's nothing wrong in failing. It's just giving yourself the opportunity to push to the max and to try and get on hold of that big moment. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com. Holger Runa's win against Novak Djokovic earlier in the week may have gone down as a surprise, but in truth, Rome had already produced a genuine shock to rank all-time with anything the ATP Tour has produced. When Hungarian qualifier Fabian Marashan took to the court against Carlos Alcaraz, Nobody gave him a second look. After one hour and 40 minutes, everybody wanted to know more. The star is born on the Italian clay. Remember the name, Fabian Marachan. Everything was perfect today. I mean, the crowd, the weather, the court. So, so yeah, I'm just very happy. I'm doing my job. Oh, my goodness. It gets better and better from the young Hungarian. I think uh, in the tiebreak it was 1-4, uh, then I won six points maybe in a row, so I'm very happy about this. I mean, I mean it's, it's amazing, I mean, I don't know uh, what happened during the points, I just uh, try to hit back every ball and try to do my best. I try to, to find something, how can I win points against him in, the, in this uh, tough situation, uh, and this just happened, so I'm, I don't know what to say. It's more Hogwarts stuff from the Hungarian was my dream last night so <laughs> now it's true I'm very very happy about this and uh, I just beat the, the world number one he's our 
uh, best in the sport, so I'm really happy about this. My name is Fabian Manoshan. Uh, I just started to play when I was five years old. I learned everything from my father. Uh, he was my first coach. And yeah, I just started to play tennis and some tournaments. I win something, so uh, you know, when you're just doing your things uh, and you're winning the tournaments, uh, you just keep going and try to be uh, better. And now, yeah, mostly I'm playing Challenger tournament. And now I'm maybe close to the top 100. This is my first uh, ATP Masters tournament here. I'm really, really happy with uh, with this tournament. I mean, the goal for me it was just to winning one match in the, in the quali, uh, and now I just uh, won uh, five five match maybe. <laughs> I don't know. And yeah, first time I beat a top hundred player here in the first round. Uh, in the second one, I just beat uh, Lehechka. He was seated. Uh, it's a really good thing for me, and now today I just played against the number one, Alcaraz. Uh, I mean, I'm just very, very happy with this one. I'm sure you haven't uh, counted how many drop shots uh, you made, but do you always play so many drop shots like today, or you played more than usual because Alcaraz stays a little bit far from the baseline? Yeah, I'm playing the same every time. I mean, if I'm playing on the Challenger tournament, uh, I'm playing the same. I, I have a lot of drop shots uh, against everybody. Uh, it, was, it was my game when I just started to play tennis. I mean, it's, it's one of my best shots, maybe. <laughs> uh, I don't know, yeah. On, on the clay, it's working much better than on the hard court. But uh, if I'm playing on hard court, I try to to hit harder than maybe some drop shots, but uh, less than on the clay. Another very good exponent of the drop shot and definitely one to keep your eye on. Fabian Marishan. The Internazionale BNL d'Italia also hosted the world's finest WTA players, among them Paul Magda Linette, who's coached by Brit Mark Gellard. He recently spoke with Candy Reid about how the two tours can work more closely together to strengthen the overall product, including the use of data. Tennis is quite far behind, actually, in a lot of these things, you know, and I've, I've, I'm a big hockey fan, so I watch a lot of their... I even watch their coaching conferences to see where they're looking and what they're thinking of the future. Um, and I think that as coaches, we don't use half of the resources that we should be using. And, and a lot of it is, is how well do we interpret the information? Because... I think all you know there's so many things available now statistics and information but it's also the interpretation is the key and that's the interesting thing with coaches you can have 10 great coaches sit down here look at the same stats and say 10 different things and uh, extrapolate different information from that so um yeah it's definitely something i try to to do so with the data how do you extrapolate the best information what do you look to most it's a good question i one of the things i've done differently with magda the last two years is focusing less on the opponent, to be honest with you, in matches, we're trying to focus a little bit more on what we do well. I think that statistics are good because they do two things. They tell you what almost always happens and what hardly ever happens. They're kind of things that you can lean on them for information and, and, and lean on them, but that's it. They're going to, you keep them in the back of your brain. So when Magda plays in the back of her mind, she knows that maybe uh, Garcia is going to serve this way at this moment. 
but that can't be at the front of her mind because then you lose focus on what's important. I think I think that's just in the back of your mind. And I find also I found with men and women that women prefer to know the strengths and weaknesses of their opponent, whereas men want more of a game plan. Okay, so now tell me what do I do with that information to, to beat the opponent? That's something I've felt has been a difference in the men and the women. And you mostly work with women uh, professional players. Would you be open to work with men? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, tennis is tennis. It's mm. the same sport. I, I just, I think once you get into the, you know, in the women's side, it's easier because you, you meet the other female players. They get to know you a little bit. So it's just, I really enjoy, uh, yeah, I really enjoy being on the women's side. There is quite a lot of coaching conveyor belt likeness, isn't there, on the women's tour in particular. The men tend to stick with a coaching team for a lot longer than the women do. Yeah, I don't think the system is working well, to be honest. I think that there's a big issue with the quality of coaching. I don't have the answer on how to improve because because in other sports, whether it's football, hockey, soccer, there's certifications or, or, or um, qualifications, I should say, that are required in order to get out there. We don't have that in tennis. Anyone can do it. I mean, how can you argue with Richard Williams you can't say, well, he didn't take his USTA exam, so he can't be a coach. I mean, he's, the, he's got the best records of any of us, but it's tough. And I think uh, it's, it's musical chairs with the coaches. I mean, they're changing from player to player, and I don't think it's a good look for the sport either. And it's probably not a good look, is it, for the player? Because you start to get a relationship, you start to get some information, building up chemistry... As you know, that's very important. And then suddenly you're discarded and looking for the next one. It seems to be a waste, a waste of time. It, it is. I mean, I, I'll give Magda a big credit. A few years ago, we were, we've maybe been working a year and a half, and we went through a run of, I think we lost seven or eight first rounds in a row. At big tournaments, it was Rome and Madrid and Strasbourg and Paris. And, you know, and you start to think as a coach, you know, are you doing something wrong? Um, and are they losing confidence? But she, I, I remember we sat down and she said, no. I feel great. I, we have been close in all eight matches. There were three sets with Cornet here and three sets here with Re Rebecca Peterson. And you're right there. But most people don't have the discipline or the patience to stick with it long enough. What makes me happy for her is that she's being rewarded for her maturity. Because I don't think many girls or many guys either have that level of patience or maturity. That's what these guys like Rafa have done so well. And even Novak and Roger, they stuck with a team for so long that you're going to go through the ups and downs, you know? You just have to realise that that is going to happen and keep the trust in your team. And that's not always easy, is it? When there's big prize money, there's points on the line, maybe you've got an agent or someone who's saying, yeah. well, you know, Magda, maybe, you know, Mark's not the right guy for you. Do you run into a few problems like that? Absolutely. It's, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. I mean, these... These players have got a lot of people talking to them all the time. And, and even the questions in the media they get, they've got agents, like you said. Fam there's a lot of pressures. And I mean, in the last few years, there's been so many weeks where she's lost a lot of money when she's, you know, and you're still getting your paycheck every week as a coach. And she's down 10 grand that week because of flights and all that stuff. So it's not, it's not easy for them. And that's why I think that it's nice to see when they're rewarded, the ones that do it the right way for me the right way because it is a team and you have to buy in that as a team you're going to go through ups and downs and that's I think on, on the women's side where it's a problem right now because because also I can jump correlation isn't causation I can jump off from Magda and go to another player and this other player suddenly goes and wins Wimbledon 
that wasn't necessarily because of me. <laughs> Timing is, you know, it, so I think that that's, you know, suddenly everyone thinks I'm a genius because of this girl wins a Grand Slam. Well, no, not necessarily. What about the guys that have done the work with her for the last five years? They were the ones that put the foundation in, and I think that's, um, yeah, an important part. Talk a little bit more about the money issue because it's easy, isn't it, to say, oh, well, they've won $5 million in career prize money. They must be very wealthy. But you're right. If you go to, say, Indian Wells in Miami, you've booked up for a coach. Uh, you're using Ian Hughes as a consultant. You mentioned Ian earlier. So that's two of you. And then you've got other people on board that are also helping on the periphery as well. So they're all getting paid. And then Magda goes to Indian Wells, for instance, gets injured. Well, you've booked all the hotel rooms. I know they're covered in part by the tournament, but you've booked everyone. You're paying salaries, and then you've got no income, and that is a problem. It is a problem. It's it's tough because so with the way it's set up now, the WTA doesn't hire the players. They're independent contractors who then hire coaches. So we're independent contractors to the independent contractors. So the players usually, once they become a full member of the WTA, which has some um, requirements, your ranking has to be of a certain level, you have to play a certain number of events, you then can pay your membership fee, uh, which gives you access to certain things, you know, but then you have to pay your insurance, they have to pay for their insurance, which is expensive every year um, for the health insurance. If they get injured, obviously their money stops, their income is gone. Um, but they're paying me regardless of whether or not they win. So if we go to a 250 event, she loses first round. I need to check what the prize money is for that, but it's probably less than $5,000. So if you figure out what she's paying me, what she's paying Ian, just salary. Then you factor in the hotel rooms for that week. She's got three rooms right now with Ian and I and then herself. Um, usually tournament pays for the player's room for as long as they're in the tournament with a minimum of five nights for, say, uh, 250 So that room is covered. So she's paying for two rooms. They were each, say, 200 a night. Then you're looking at flights. And then you've got to cover some food bills here and there. Food isn't so bad, but that adds up as well. Racket stringing as well. Racket stringing for her, definitely going to be included. And there's, there's always those other little expenses that come into it, you know, um, here and there, there's just, you know, you might need taxis and stuff to places the tournament doesn't take you. I mean, baggage every week on the flights, is, you're always paying overweight stuff. So, you know, and that's where the, the, the thing is, is that the players are relying on the big tournaments to cover the, their year, really. And you can hear Candy's whole chat, all 30 minutes of it, with Mark Gellard, coach of Magda Lynette on the ATP podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and TuneIn. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. As we gear up for the second Grand Slam of the year at Roland Garros, it feels a little strange doing so, knowing that a 14-time men's champion, Rafael Nadal, will not be there. The King of Clay announced this week that he has lost the race to be fit in time for the French Open, which means he misses it for the first time since 2004. So, what to make of Nadal's injury predicament. We asked a man who knows him very well, fellow Spaniard, Feliciano Lopez. This is more like, a, for me, it's like more personal. I feel sad that uh, this, you know, stage of his career, he, he can do what he really loves to do, that is playing tennis. And so I've seen Roger, for example, just last year when uh, unfortunately he had to retire. 
the way he did, it was very sad because I'm sure he would have loved, you know, to say goodbye, playing tennis and doing what he loves. I just hope that it's not going to be the case for Rafa because, you know, it would be very sad that after 20 years playing, you have to retire, not the way you want it. And uh, I just hope for him to recover and to be back on court as soon as possible. Whenever he feels, you know, recovered from his injury, um, it's going to be a great news. So it's just more personal, you know, that I just want him to play tennis and, and to finish, uh, you know, his career on, on his own terms, you know. I don't think uh, it's going to be nice for him and for everybody in the world, for all the tennis fans to, to see another, you know, case uh, uh, similar to, to Roger. Nadal's absence from the tour is certainly felt by all the players, young and old. Yannick Sinner is one of the new breed. So I came on tour when obviously he was playing, and uh, or he is still playing. And uh, but in the other way, uh, I haven't seen Roger around a lot because he was injured and everything. Um, so for sure, Novak and Rafa have seen much, much more. And uh, I feel like it is a little bit different, for sure. Uh, you can feel it, you, and also you can see it from the draw, no? Uh, when when you see uh, Novak or Rafa uh, in the draw, it it makes a little bit of difference, for sure, because you know what they are capable of and uh, and everything and how much they want. But uh, in the other way, you know, uh, I think. Uh, slowly the time is coming that the, also the new generation is coming so who, who mix up a little bit the, the, the draw and everything so it's, it's good. And those thoughts were echoed by the man very much now carrying the flag for the older generation, Novak Djokovic. Uh, new generation is, uh, is, is here already. I mean Alcaraz is uh, number one in the world from Monday and obviously he's playing amazing tennis and um, I think it's also good for our sport that we have uh, new faces and uh, new guys coming up. It's normal, you know. We've been saying this for years that we can expect it to come that moment to come when you know you're going to have kind of shift of generations. And but we, you know, I'm I'm personally still trying to hang in there, you know, with all of them. And uh, I'm I'm happy with, you know, of course, <laughs> very happy with my career so far. So I still I still have the hunger to keep going. And let's see let's see how far I'm going to play. Great to hear from 22-time Grand Slam champion Novak Djokovic, who is now very much in the business of trying to make history. If he can clinch the title in Paris, he will move ahead of Nadal and take the outright lead in the all-time list of men's Grand Slam champions. That is it for this week. I'm Seb Lozier. Thank you for listening. There is lots more to come over the next few weeks when Chris Bowers will be taking over and lining up a whole host of guests to bring all the latest and exclusive interviews from Roland Garros. Enjoy the tennis. 